Welcome to the Kira Phelan podcast. My guest this week is Father Peter McFerry. He reflects on his life, discusses the anger he feels towards the political system, and how helping homeless people has changed his relationship with God. Father Peter McFerry, thank you very much for joining the Kira Phelan podcast. Some people describe you as a living saint. Every guest that I have on the podcast, I ask them how they would describe themselves. How do you feel about people describing you as a living saint? Hey, well, I don't resonate with that, obviously. <laughs> I would describe myself in the past as an angry young man. And now I describe myself as an angry old man <laughs> because I'm very angry at... Uh, at the way in which vulnerable people, homeless people, people on the margins are, are treated in this society <clears throat> by the authorities. I'm very, yeah, it makes me very angry. Mm. Has your anger intensified over the years? I think my anger has grown and become more focused over the years. So, I mean, uh, there should be no homelessness in a country like the, as wealthy as Ireland. There should be no poverty in a country with billions of, of euros in, in uh, surplus taxation. Uh, there should be no children on long waiting lists for mental health or for with scoliosis waiting for an operation. Uh, I, just, I just think we have our priorities all wrong. How do you deal with then the anger personally? So when you do get angry or you have tough days, how do you deal with that? I release the anger by a lot of writing. I do a lot of writing for various magazines and articles. And I am fairly frequently asked to go on the radio or, or television. And that's an outlet for me to express my anger. Mm -hmm. uh, my anger at the institutions and the way they operate uh, I'm very clear I'm not angry at any individual. <clears throat> it's the policies and the institutions that are failing uh, people on the margins. And that's where, uh, that's where my anger is directed. Mm. Do you think that you're being listened to? I think there's a lot of people, a lot of the public listen to me. Mm. Are my ideas getting any traction with the authorities? Very little. <laughs> and that would it be fair to say hasn't changed over the years so since you have been coming out on radio and tv and writing it's what has changed is in the early days i was attacked by the by the authorities for instance the first hostel we opened was for teenage boys living on the street hmm. uh, and i went to the authorities and i said look we're planning on opening this will you support us will you fund us and they said no way <laughs> They, these were kids living on the street, so they were doing a little bit of robbing to survive. They were seen by the authorities as delinquents who should be locked up. And I was accused of, uh, <clears throat> of being part of the problem, not part of the solution. Because I was giving these kids a place to live. I was feeding them properly, giving them nice clothes, bringing them on holidays, which is what most kids growing up <laughs> experience. Uh, but that was seen as, as supporting the problem <clears throat> and these kids should be, should be locked away. So, and <clears throat> there are other examples where I was, uh, where I was, yeah, disparaged, uh, 
denounced. Uh, that has disappeared. Now they just ignore me. <laughs> so that's an advance anyway. <laughs> Do you really feel like you're being ignored? <clears throat> well, I have very clear ideas on how to solve the housing crisis. Now, obviously, uh, very few of those ideas have, <laughs> have gone into policy. Now, maybe the authorities don't agree with them, mm. uh, but I, I think we could solve this housing crisis uh, fairly, fairly quickly uh, with a couple of radical policy uh, changes. What this government are doing is they're tweaking the failed policies that have been operating over the last 12-15 years and that's not going to work. We need far more radical policies and this government doesn't do radical policies. So would it be fair to say in your view that you think a change in government, or do you think there's anyone that are in Dáil <coughs> at the moment that would be able to make that change? It's a change in policy. doesn't matter the individuals. We need a change in policy. Uh, so I've never attacked individuals. Uh, the, 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 when a, there have been several Doyle motions to... Uh, to uh, to, to remove the Minister for Housing. I've never supported those <clears throat> because it's not the change of a nameplate on the door that matters, it's a change of policy. Mm. Can you take me back to your childhood? <clears throat> mm. What was it like for you? I think people would be interested to know why you became a Jesuit priest. Yeah, I had a very comfortable uh, childhood. My father was a doctor in a small town, Uri doctor in a small town like Newry had <laughs> was financially secure and had good social standing. My mother's and I learned a sense of service from my doctor, from my father. Because in those days he, he didn't have a practice. He was starting off, he didn't have a practice, he didn't have assistance. So he was on duty 24-7. And I'd hear the phone going at night time, father getting up, going out to see his patient never complained. Some nights the phone might go twice. Uh, so I got a sense of service from my father. My mother was a Welsh Protestant who converted to Catholicism to marry my father because in those days if a Catholic married a Protestant they were going to go to hell for all eternity. To avoid that fate my mother converted to Catholicism and like many converts became more Catholic than the Catholics themselves. So I got a sense of faith from my mother sense of service from my father. So when I was deciding what I would do, I thought, well, priesthood was a way of combining service within a faith context. And I was at a Jesuit school, so I thought, <clears throat> well, maybe uh, I, I'd try and become a Jesuit. So I applied and for some reason they accepted me. Uh, I've never looked back. I've never, ever regretted it. Uh, I'm very grateful to the Jesuits. <clears throat> they have given me great freedom to follow my uh, to follow my what I want to do really uh, so I became a Jesuit uh, say so I never looked back and I've had a great freedom to uh, to try and pursue the issues that uh, I do pursue Was it at the age of 18 you joined? Yes in those days mm. you went in uh, you could go in at 18 it wouldn't take you now at 18 mm. <laughs> they Do you think that's a good thing? I think it's a good thing but I suspect if I had been out for a few years, I might not join them. <laughs> really? So I think it was probably providential that I went in, why do in you think, those days at 18. Yeah, why do you think that um, is? 
If you, if you didn't, is it a sense that you might have... I might have found other avenues to pursue or a career to pursue or... Because uh, I wasn't committed to social justice back in those days. That came much later. Mm. <clears throat> so for me, leaving school, it was, I want to get a job. I want to get a job I enjoy. <clears throat> I want to do some good. Uh, I could have done that in, in a variety of ways. Mm. So, but joining Jesuits at 18, that, sh that, uh, that carved out the path for me, uh, a very single-minded path for me, mm. uh, which uh, might not have happened if I had gone off on other paths. Mm. You say Mass on Sunday in one of the prisons. Yeah. And when you're asked, you say Mass here on Gardner Street. Mm -hmm. How have people's faith evolved both inside the prison and also in, ch in the church that we're sitting in at the moment? Because, as you know, people's attitude towards faith would have changed dramatically when the clerical abuse came out. Um, and still, we're still hearing stories about it. So mm -hmm. could you give me the two dynamics of what you're hearing from prisoners and then what you're hearing from people at mass on a Sunday? Yeah, prisoners, uh, a huge number of prisoners have experienced abuse, many of them abuse in the children's institutions. <clears throat> I remember the uh, Minister for, uh, uh, for Children coming to Wheatfield Prison when there were 16 and 17 year olds in Wheatfield Prison and she, uh, she came to the mass I was saying for those young people and she asked them uh, how many of you were in the children's detention centre in Oberstown? every single hand went up. <laughs> so a lot of prisoners have ex bad childhood experiences, but they don't, uh, they take people as they are. So, right, I'm a priest, many experienced abuse at the hands of priests, but they don't, they don't point that at me. They take me as I am. And uh, they see me as somebody who's on their side, who's an advocate for them, and they, they respect that. So prisoners have a, a strong faith. It's not, it's not expressed in the traditional institutional ways of going to mass and so forth, but they do have a, they do have a strong faith. In the church here, you hardly ever see anybody under maybe fifty or under sixty. Uh, I can understand that. I can young people are uh, young people just do not engage with the institutional church. Young people have a great sense of fairness and a great sense of justice. Uh, and if you ask young people to do something for somebody in need, they will jump at doing it. So I always say, unless the church, uh, re, uh, unless the church recognizes the centrality of social justice to its ministry and its mission, uh, those young people are lost. What the church is tr often trying to do is get young people into the church through sacraments and through the mass, and then uh, hopefully get them involved in, in 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 work for social justice. I think it's the other way around. We should be getting young people involved in the work for social justice, and then maybe some of them will come to understand the uh, the, the the church in a in a different way. So that's that's my. Uh, that's my dream. 
that every parish would have a social justice ministry, ministry to maybe the homeless or the poor or the refugees or something, and young people would be asked to, to uh, participate in that social ministry. And then, uh, for me, the Eucharist is very much part of the, the commitment to social justice. They might begin to see the Eucharist in a different light. At the moment, the Eucharist is just a boring old service, <laughs> mm -hmm. which really means nothing to them. But for me, the Eucharist is <clears throat> Jesus is giving his life for us. Uh, and we, at the Eucharist, commit ourselves to giving our life for others. Mm. So the Eucharist for me is central to the commitment of the church to social justice. Uh, and I think young people, if they're involved in social justice, can be led to see the value of the Eucharist in that context. Mm. Do you think that more people will be attracted to join you know priesthood if they were allowed to have their own family and um, if they could get married what are your views on that well, i think celibacy is a big issue today obviously uh, we live in a very sexualized world where sex is uh, is in front of your eyes everywhere on on your mobile phone on your tablet on your computer uh, so celibacy is a huge ask for young people in today's world. Uh, but for me, it's not a question of priests. I think, uh, uh, I think we shouldn't focus on priesthood. Mm. The Church of the Future is going to be a church of lay people, run by lay people. The priest will be a, the priest has a role, and the priest's role will be to, as a leader of the community uh, and a, as a minister of the sacraments. But the church itself will be run by lay people, uh, so I'm not I'm not uh, focused on increasing the number of priests. Or, or that's not uh, people say should should be allowed. I'm all in favour of women becoming priests. Uh, in the time of Jesus, you know, gender equality was not an issue. Today, gender equality is a justice issue. So I think by excluding women from priesthood, <clears throat> that's an injustice. However. The downside of admitting women to, to the priesthood is that the traditional model of priesthood will continue uh, because there will be more priests available to do more of the things mm. that priests are doing. Uh, and I think that model of priesthood has to change and it will only change when there is a dire shortage of, of priests and you're forced into a church that is, uh, is run by lay people. Mm. Do you think that uh, children are sexualised at a, a young, too young of an age these days? Well, they are, obviously, I think. I mean, it's, uh, the, they, they have smartphones from the, the age of eight or nine nowadays, and you can access anything on smartphones. Mm -hmm. So I think that, uh, yeah, I think they are growing up in an age where uh, sexuality is, they, they're living in an aura of sexuality. It surrounds them at every, at every step. Mm. Interested to hear when you reflect on your own life, do you ever wish that you could have had your own family or got married? In one way I do, but in another way, <coughs> being celibate is, it gives you freedom. It gives you freedom to work with homeless people in a way that you wouldn't be able to do if you had to work with you, if you had a family and children to look after. Uh, so for example, I've been at the inner city of Dublin <laughs> when, it, when it was pretty, uh, it, was, it was pretty 
difficult to live there. Mm -hmm. Being in Ballymun, Ballymun can be a difficult place to live in. Uh, if I had a family and children, I wouldn't want to be living there. You know, there's a very negative peer group that your children may get involved with. There's a huge amount of drugs. Uh, I wouldn't want my children growing up in that environment. So being celibate gives you a freedom to, to go places and do things that you mightn't be able to do or want to do if you had a wife and family to, uh, to worry about. Uh, it also gives me a freedom because I don't have to earn a living to support a wife and a family. Uh, I, I can live very simply mm -hmm. uh, and, and that gives me again a freedom to, uh, to go places to do things. Do you ever wonder about what your life may have looked like if you didn't well, I have two brothers, they're both doctors, I presume that would have been <laughs> what my life would have looked like. I probably would have become a doctor or a dentist or something like that and had a career, made a lot of money, had a nice house, but that does not attract me. Do you ever get, even though you deal with a lot of people and you on a daily basis, do you ever get lonely or seek that love and affection from you know, a partner, woman or man? No, I never get lonely. I don't have time to be lonely. I'm constantly surrounded by people. Uh, a good rapport with a lot of homeless people. Uh, they, can, they will be very supportive. They appreciate, many of them, what I do for them and for others. Uh, so in that sense, I get, a, I get affection or uh, emotional support from the, the people that I'm working with. Yeah, it would be nice to have children. Uh, watch them growing up and watch them becoming adults, but uh, I think the, com the, the, the compensation is that I have hundreds and hundreds of children who are homeless. Mm. <clears throat> what is your message to people who don't have any faith? Uh, I don't, I'm not trying to give them faith. Uh, I think the message is, for me, I, would, I wouldn't use the word God, for instance, anymore. I think we should abolish the word God, because God means so many different things to so many different people. You know, to Islamic State, <laughs> to God means someone who wants them to kill and destroy. You know, for uh, when Jesus was around, the Jews, God wanted the, the Jews believed that God wanted them to stone to death a woman caught in adultery. So God means so many different things to so many people. And I'd prefer to, to, to use the word mystery. We live within a mystery. I think people can understand that. And uh, you know, one of the things we all search for is meaning. What's the meaning of life? What's the meaning of my life? Uh, and that can be found only in mystery. There is a mystery, there's something bigger than me. Uh, and I'm involved in that something that's bigger than me. Uh, it's a mystery and we can't understand a mystery. That's what is the meaning of a mystery. We can't understand a mystery. And we keep searching to understand who God is. We'll never understand who God is because God is mystery. And so I think God doesn't ask us to understand who God is. I think God asks us to trust, to trust in this mystery. That this mystery is somehow involved in our world and is somehow provides meaning for what is happening in our world. I think people can understand that better than using the word God. When I talk about God to say maybe a homeless person, 
there are so many misconceptions that have to be peeled away before uh, I can uh, explain to them mm. who my God is. So, but are I you prefer, praying to? Are you praying to a God? I'm praying to a God. Yes. So is that God and in a different image? Uh, obviously, a different um, image to what a lot of a lot a lot of other people would have of God. But what's yeah. your what's your my image of God comes from Jesus in the Gospels. And Jesus in the Gospels was very, uh, his focus was on building uh, the community here on earth uh, over which God could preside. And that community here on earth meant reaching out to the poor, reaching out to the unwanted and the rejected. Mm. That's what Jesus did. And that's what uh, God wants us to do. That brought Jesus into conflict with his society and with the authorities and led to his death. And if we are committed to those who are poor, lonely, homeless, refugees and so forth, that will bring us into conflict, uh, maybe with our society. For example, if, uh, if uh, there's a homeless hostel opening in a particular area or a traveller campsite being suggested for a particular area, there will be a huge amount of local opposition. And if I stand up and say, I support this, <laughs> I'll understand what it's like to be marginalized myself mm -hmm. uh, by that community. So standing up for the poor and the unwanted can bring you into conflict with your own society and your own, uh, with the authorities. But that's very much what Jesus did. And that's very much what I believe God asks us to do. So for me, God isn't someone who's saying, oh, you must come and worship me. <laughs> That's not who God is. God is saying, look, I don't need anything. I have everything I need. Uh, but my children have needs. Huge amount of my children have needs. They're poor, they're stressed, they're lonely, they're homeless, they're refugees, they're, uh, they, they have nothing to eat. Uh, that's what I want you to do. Go and look after my children. So I think we are focused on God up there. Uh, and God is saying, look, forget about me, forget about me. <laughs> I want you to focus on the children. And that's what every parent wants. Every parent is the children are the focus of their life. And the parents are willing to make sacrifices for the sake of their children. So I think every parent uh, would want people to not to be sort of uh, looking, looking to them, but to be looking to their children. Mm. And that's what God wants. I'm interested to hear what you think when you meet family members um, that may have, you know, lost a young child or, you know, someone close to them and they may, may have previously had a strong sense of faith. And then, and it's not just an isolated case of someone, you know, maybe a parent that has lost a child at a young age but also the tragedies that you see happening in the world in terms of conflict and war and the deaths that uh, happen as a result of that. And some people think to themselves, how, how could that happen? We make the mistake of thinking that God is a person like us. Yes, a super, super person, but someone who thinks like us and makes decisions like us. And we often think that that person we call God is controlling everything that happens here in the world. And so when bad things happen, we say, well, how could God allow that to happen? <clears throat> That's not who God is. Mm -hmm. uh, we are part of nature. And in nature, good things happen, bad things happen. 
something to do with God. It's just that is nature. There's an earthquake occurs and 5,000 people are killed, but that's due to the, the, the plates in the, uh, in, the, in, the, in, in the earth that are moving. Uh, nothing to do with God. Mm. God is present in our world through the whole, what we call what I call the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> God is present in our world. God is love. And so God is present in our world in every act of love that occurs. And so you have an earthquake in Syria. God was present there in the hundreds of thousands of acts of love and care that people uh, showed to those who were uh, who are bereaved uh, are to those who are injured. That's where God was present in the earthquake. God didn't cause the earthquake. Mm -hmm. God didn't want the earthquake to happen, but God was present there in the earthquake, in the love that occurs. <clears throat> and so in our society, in all our society, God is present in every act of kindness to a refugee, in every act of kindness to homeless people, to those who visit the, the lonely, all those acts, that's where, that's where God is present. God is present in love. And the more that we can love one another, uh, the more God is present in our world. How has your dealings with homeless people changed your relationship with God? Uh, well, I grew up with a very traditional image, uh, understanding of God, you know. I, believed originally I believed that God laid down all these laws and we were supposed to obey these laws and if we obeyed these laws we'd go to heaven and if we didn't obey these laws we might go to hell uh, and so uh, I grew up with that with that understanding uh, God was a God of the law when I went to the inner city and I saw the poverty and uh, the, the lack of opportunity for people in the inner city uh, and a young person might, uh, who's living in dire poverty and his jeans get torn, he has no way of replacing those jeans except to go down to a shop and rob them. <laughs> uh, and so um, I came to believe that God is no longer a God, God is not a God of the law. Our God is a God of compassion, a God who cares for us, a God who reaches out to us. Uh, and then our responsibility then as people who believe in a God, uh, as people who are faithful to a God, our responsibility is to be the compassion of God to other people. So for me, God became a God of compassion uh, and that has changed my life. My, uh, what, my responsibility in life now is not to obey laws that God has laid down. My responsibility in life is to reach out in compassion to those who are in need uh, and that's what God wants. When you moved to Dublin in the 70s and you opened the hostel the conditions were very different to what you're dealing with today. Mm -hmm. Can you recall what that was like? The conditions? Mm, when you were dealing with um, you know homeless people in hostels yeah. when you took in young boys. Yeah conditions were Conditions for them were terrible. <clears throat> and the understanding of why they were homeless was, was terrible. Mm. Uh, these were kids who were being abused at home, who were experiencing violence at home, whose parents were alcoholics because no drugs around in those days. I remember I was visiting St. Patrick's Institution at Juvenile de Detention Centre one day, and I came out and I went through 20 young people from the inner city who were in St. Patrick's Institution. 19 of them, had alcoholic parents. So uh, 
the, the conditions that young people were living in were, 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 were horrific, but there was no understanding of that. The attitude was, these are young delinquents, the response should be to either lock them up or bring them back home again. There was no understanding of the, where they were coming from. <clears throat> and that's changed. You won't get a 17-year-old now sleeping on the street, at least not for more than a day or two. The social services will be straight in uh, and will look after them, and that's, uh, that's great. Services are perfect, but it's, it's, it's a huge advance on, a, on what was there in the 70s and a huge advance in thinking. We now appreciate that young people, some young people have horrific childhoods, have serious adverse uh, childhood experiences, and they need uh, counselling, they need protection rather than just punishment. Uh, so that, that has changed. It, has, it is beginning to change with, with older homeless people. Again, many of them, some of them, do have a, a drug problem or an alcohol problem and that makes it very difficult for the public to empathise with them. But I think attitudes are beginning to change and that homeless people are no longer uh, as they would be in America, seen as down and outs or uh, drifters, or uh, that we, we, we wouldn't see homeless people that way. Mm. Uh, yeah, we'd see homeless people as people now who have, uh, again, whose drug use or alcohol use is related to their often childhood adverse experiences. Uh, as their only way of coping. I think we're beginning to see homeless people in a more sympathetic light. How has the crisis, I mean, look, you've hundreds of hostels opened the work that you've done, a lot of people are aware of it, um, from the first day that you opened the first hostel in Dublin to what you've built today in terms of helping homeless people. But in the last couple of years, how has the crisis evolved in terms of the people that you're helping? Well, homelessness has changed dramatically. <coughs> As I say, in the, those days it was teenagers living on the street, mm. that you won't get that anymore. Then it was young adults with a drug problem, because drugs came into the scene. Heroin was the only drug on the, on the block, so people began using heroin. Nobody knew anything about heroin. Nobody knew how addictive it was. And nobody knew the health consequences of using heroin. I know whole families in the inner city who were wiped out by AIDS. Uh, every child in the family would have died from AIDS and sometimes the parents would have died from AIDS. But young people who are living in a hugely depressing environment, living in poverty, seeing no opportunities for, uh, for getting out of it, heroin came along and they thought this was the best thing ever invented. It mm -hmm. lifted them out of that miserable existence for a couple of hours at a time. Uh, so that became the, uh, the dominant a feature of homelessness for, for many, many years. Young people, uh, usually with, with a heroin problem. Uh, then in the last 10 years, again, families became homeless. There were no such thing as homeless families 10 years ago. <laughs> I mean, some families did become homeless, but they were quickly rehoused. Uh, today, homeless families is a massive problem. Uh, the damage it's doing to the children is well documented. Children become very stressed, they become, uh, they, their physical health deteriorates, their mental health deteriorates, their education deteriorates because you can't go to school and study hard if you're stressed out. They're stressed out because they see their parents stressed out. Uh, so that has become a major, major issue 
uh, which should never have been allowed to happen. And with a single homeless person, at least you can give them a bed in a hostel. Now, I'm very critical of many of the hostels. I think there's no privacy, there's no safety, there's no security, but at least you can give them a bed in a hostel. You can't do that for a family. You have to give them their own space and their own privacy. Uh, so that has become much more difficult to, uh, to address than, uh, than single homeless people. So the homelessness has changed over the years, um, but there is now a greater uh, understanding of homelessness and why people become homeless and the need to give homeless people their own their own home housing first now is the uh, is the accepted policy by government that means you take homeless people uh, you don't wait for them if they have an addiction problem or a mental health problem you don't wait for them to address that problem because that's not going to happen if you're on the streets <laughs> Uh, before you give them a place to live. You give them a place to live and then you help them to address whatever personal issues they may have. That's now accepted government policy. Uh, so it's, uh, thing, things have changed, have changed dramatically. And I look at, uh, in the 70s, you know, there was no interest. Uh, when I went to say I was opening a hostel, I was told, look, we don't agree with this, we don't support this, we're not going to fund this. There was simply no interest in, uh, in addressing the problem of homeless teenagers. Now, of course, there is. Child Care Act changed all that. Uh, and uh, now the issue is, uh, you know, how do we address adult homelessness? How do we address family homelessness? Mm. Uh, and that's an advance. And I see, you know, in the 70s, homeless kids on the streets, 14, 15, 16-year-olds on the street, now there's no 14, 15, 16 year olds on the street. And we look back and say, how could we have left a 14 year old living on the street? How could we have allowed that to continue? And I would hope that in another maybe 10 or 15 years, we look back today and say, how could we have let homeless people live on the streets? That's, that's scandalous. Mm. So I take the long-term view. I am optimistic that we can address the, the homeless issue and that we can eventually provide every homeless person with their own home. Mm -hmm. Has any story of recent times really stuck with you in terms of a family that you were dealing with or even a single adult? Is there anything that, I know you would have come across pretty horrific scenarios and situations, but is there anything that really stands out to you in recent years even? What stands out to me, I can't give individual uh, examples, what stands out to me is that I have grown in my understanding of why people use drugs or alcohol. Uh, you know, I would have traditionally thought, like many people, that, you know, people use drugs or alcohol because they're, they're, there's something wrong with them. You know, they want to enjoy themselves, they want the pleasure of using drugs, or now I realise that using drugs or alcohol is a way of coping. And the only way they have of coping with adverse experiences uh, which have never been addressed. So for me the problem of drug use is not that individuals uh, are, are at fault, it's that society is at fault. It never provided the counselling for abuse, it never saved some of these homeless people when they were children from the violence. Uh, that they experienced at home. Uh, so 
I have come to have much greater understanding and therefore sympathy for people who are using drugs. And uh, part of our work is we, we run five drug and alcohol treatment centres. Part of our work is to address those issues mm. for homeless people. You spoke about coping there. And I often wonder, I know you said you, wrote, you write in magazines and you do radio interviews when you're angry, but surely it must get so difficult for you some days when you are faced with the crisis scenarios when people are coming to you. How do you personally cope with that? Because it's very difficult to stay positive. It is, but I, I've learned to cope with it. I've been doing this a long time, <laughs> uh, so I've learned to uh, I've learned to cope with it. I realize I cannot solve the whole world's problems, uh, so I can only do whatever little bit I can do, mm. and that's that's enough. I'd love to be able to do more, but uh, I can only do what I can only do, and I have to be content with that. When you say you learn to cope, did you struggle prior to coming to that realisation that you can't solve all of the problems? Uh, yeah, when I went to the inner city of Dublin, uh, I thought, now I was going to change the people in the inner city. <laughs> Young priest coming in, idealistic. The only thing that changed was me. <laughs> they changed me. Mm. Uh, and I remember one time a woman came to me saying, you know, could you, could you have a little bit, bit of financial help? <clears throat> and I was saying to her, when do you get paid? She said, I, I don't get paid till tomorrow. I said, well, how, why have you no money uh, today? She said, because when I get paid, I lend money to my neighbours when they're stuck. And I'm coming with my middle class attitude thinking, look, that's madness. Hold on to your money. Manage it. Keep it for the week. She said, no. My security is I can lend money to my neighbours and they will lend money back to me when I'm stuck. So that's my security. So I was coming in with my middle class attitudes, totally wrong. Uh, so yeah, they changed me a lot. Uh, and that's... Mm -hmm. You've been assaulted in part of your work. Um, you know, I say plenty of times that no one even knows about. You know, there was one recent time that uh, it appeared in news how do you deal with that? Because obviously that can, like when, when you're physically harmed by the people that you are helping, how, how? It has happened very, very rarely. Okay. And usually very mild, minor, you know, a black eye or something. That particular incident was a young fellow high on tablets early hours of the morning, knocked on the door, looking for money. Um, I actually gave him money, not because I was scared, but because he said his mother had died down in Wexford and he needed to get the bus down to go to the funeral. And I thought, well, OK, I don't want him to miss his mother's funeral. So even though he'd given me a black eye, I said, look, I don't want you to miss Here's Here's 20 euro, go down and get the bus. Mm -hmm. uh, now, he came back the next day, apologised. We shook hands. Uh, and now he's off the tablets completely. And he's doing very well. He's really made a huge amount of progress mm -hmm. since that time. So I think that's great. I'm, I'm delighted at that. Now, I could have called the police. He would have got three or four years for assaulting an old age pensioner in his own home at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> oh, what good would that have done? Yeah. Now he's, he's, he's moving his life forward in a very, very positive way. And uh, yeah, that gives me a lot of joy. 
But do you not get disheartened ever by something like a physical assault? No, very, very seldom happens. <clears throat> okay. uh, and that young fella couldn't walk around Ballymond for a long time. All right, <laughs> because people are aware that they... People, people are very angry. They were trying everything to find out what his, what his name was, and I wouldn't tell them. Okay. But they were very angry that I had been assaulted. So, so you have people protecting you? Uh, and there's, there's a lot of homeless people would uh, would protect me. Yeah. A lot of people, you know, would know of your story, um, the work that you've done, but would also like to know, have you ever had to overcome a personal challenge in your life? Um, I think I'm too busy. To <laughs> uh, personal challenge. Uh, <clears throat> I, I really don't know is the answer. I think what, what changed me was my understanding of God, you know. Uh, I couldn't do the, if, I think if I had continued understanding God as a God of the law, I would probably have left priesthood mm. and left the church. Okay. Uh, it was my understanding of God as compassion and God as love and calling us to be compassion and love to others. I think that really reinforced my, uh, my faith and gave me the strength to, uh, to continue doing what, uh, what I'm doing. So, and I, that, uh, that change came from the inner, people of the inner city of Dublin. <laughs> they, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, it's uh, the God of the law just disappeared when people have nothing. Get a kid who's, uh, get a kid who breaks a window, brought down to the Garda station, gets a hiding in the Garda station. <laughs> Two crimes have been committed. A minor crime breaking a window and a major crime of assault. The kid gets uh, gets uh, gets maybe locked up. Or the guard who assaulted him gets promoted. Well, I'm saying to myself, there's something very wrong here in our society. So, uh, and people say, you know, if a kid goes out shoplifting, that's wrong. It's against the law. Would you not condemn him? And I'd say, okay, if you want me to condemn him. For shoplifting. Uh, I will only do that if I can condemn even more strongly the society that puts him in a position where he has to shoplift because of dire poverty. Mm. So the God of the law disappeared for me and if that hadn't happened, if the inner city people of the inner city hadn't taught me that, uh, I don't think I'd be doing this work mm. today. Do you think though that people that do commit, you know, theft uh, crimes like that, although they may have come from a disadvantaged background, do they not also have to accept responsibility that what they did was wrong, even though they might have been put in a situation whereby, you know, like you mentioned, the ripped jeans, that they had no choice but to go and rob a mm -hmm. pair of jeans mm -hmm. because that's the only way that they can replace them. Of course, we all have to take responsibility for what we're doing. They broke the law. <coughs> did they break the moral law? I don't think so. Uh, they had no choice. Uh, yes, they broke the law. And, uh, but people talk about rehabilitation of prisoners. <laughs> you know, 70% uh, of people who go to prison have an addiction. Over 50% have a mental health problem. They have never been addressed. So I don't talk about the rehabilitation of prisoners. I talk about the rehabilitation of society. <laughs> mm. 
because uh, what happens if a prisoner is released from prison, will that prisoner uh, re reoffend? That depends not on what happens in prison, that depends on the six weeks after they come out of prison. If they come out of prison back into homelessness or back into the community, drug-filled community they're living in, back into poverty, yeah, the likelihood is they're going to reoffend. Mm -hmm. Now I had a guy in England in prison, <clears throat> and the prisons in England are no great model for us, but this guy wrote to me in November and he said, I'm getting out in February. They have uh, organized accommodation for me. They have organized a place on a training course for me. And there'll be two weeks welfare money waiting for me at the gate when I leave. I'm thinking, why can't we do that for everybody? And the re-offending re rate would drop, would drop dramatically. So just releasing people into homelessness with no money in their pocket is a recipe for re-offending. People's attitude towards um, people who use drugs and who are homeless. There is a cohort in society that will never see your view <clears throat> yeah. on life. What do you have to say to them? I can understand that. People are scared. They don't mm. want to engage with drug users or people who's drunk. Uh, I can understand. I would say don't engage with them. This is, they need help. They need professional help. Mm. Uh, I would say, say don't look down on them. Uh, try to understand uh, uh, why they are uh, using drugs or alcohol. Just try to understand. Don't uh, don't give out about them. Don't uh, don't pass uh, the disparaging comments to them. Uh, just try to understand. And I, the way I say, you know, I I, I often believe. I often say, and I do believe that if I had been born into the circumstances that uh, many of the people I work with were born into, I would be the person in prison. And if they were born into my circumstances, they would be the priest coming up to visit me in prison. So it's, uh, I think of two young, young babies born at the same time, same hospital, lying side by side in their little cots. One grows up to be a judge, the other grows up to be an armed robber. What's the difference? Mm. It's not in their DNA. It's the difference is the experiences they have growing up makes all the difference. Yeah. So I, say to, I would say to people, try and just understand where they're coming from, why they're using drugs or alcohol. Uh, just yeah, don't engage in that judgmental dismissal of people mm. with a drug or an alcohol problem. Can you tell me the happiest moment of your life so far? Do you recall something that... One of the things that really I enjoy is, you know, when you offer somebody their own home, a little apartment, and they've been on streets maybe or in homeless hostels for years, and they walk into this apartment, and our apartments are beautiful. Some of our staff complain, they're much nicer than the private <laughs> rented accommodation they're living in. But our apartments are, are very nice. Uh, when they walk in, they can't believe it. Uh, and they say, you mean this is for me? Uh, it's a dream come true for them. And just to watch their face and the smile on their face uh, is, is just it's magic. So that happens a good bit for you? That we have housed over a thousand people in their own apartments. Yeah, that happens, uh, that happens a lot, yeah. A piece of advice that you would 
give to someone that you'd meet on the street or my <clears> next <throat> podcast guest? What's the motto you live by? Uh, don't live for yourself, live for others. For Jesus, other people were everything. And he was willing to sacrifice everything, even his own life for other people. So I suppose uh, my motto would be, let's don't live for yourself, live for others. Thank you very much for joining me today. Pleasure. Join me back here next week for another episode of the Cure Feeling podcast.